Where, where... Good morning. This is Michael Vandervoort. It's, uh, it's Monday, and of course, it's uh, the anniversary of a very, uh, very sad event in American history. It's 9-11, 2023. Um, I was in uh, I was in Minneapolis in a staff meeting when when I heard about the events that were unfolding, and I guess none of us will forget where we were. John, good morning. Um, where were you? Good morning. Um, I was sitting um, at my desk at a former uh, a law firm I worked at back in back in two thousand one, and I had Howard Stern on on the radio in the background of my office, and that's how I learned about what was going on. It was. Uh, quite the uh, yeah I mean you try and uh, put yourself back in the mindset of what you were thinking at the time um, and um, and it's hard now to reframe it as the uncertainty of that morning but it felt uncertain and then it got very very clear as to what was going on and really really scary very quickly yeah, I was uh, I was in a staff meeting in Bayport, Minnesota, which is a community just outside of Minneapolis, and our CHRO's executive assistant came running in the room, and this was a, a woman who would probably be best described as unflappable. She just nothing shook her, and she was, you know, and you can't see me, but I'm, you can't drop it. Nobody else can, but she's waving her hands in the air and unable to speak, and basically said, "Turn on." the TV, because this was kind of in the age of the internet, but we didn't all have immediate access to every news channel on the phone 22 years ago, right? So it's a little different. Turn it on, and we just dispersed the staff meeting. And then I I and some of my colleagues were were pinned in Minneapolis for the better part of a week because we couldn't get flights. We wound up driving home eventually when it became obvious airports weren't going to reopen, you know? So as, as to your point, it's very unsettling and very, a lot of unknown stuff. And it's unfolded, you know, anyway, so unfortunate and our thoughts, I guess, go out to everyone that uh, was affected by that more directly than I was for sure, but not the purpose of our show today. So let's pivot to the show. And uh, we did a show, John, a couple of weeks ago. I didn't check the exact date, but we did a show a couple of weeks ago, just in the latter part of August, uh, just before Gwen Wilcox left the board, uh, she's since been reconfirmed and is going to come back and serve another term on the board, which I didn't see that happening. And there was also a lot of other stuff that we talked about in that show that didn't happen or happened in a way that we didn't expect. So we're going to kind of do another NLRB handicap show here, um, I guess, starting with the the what we thought was going to be a Joy Silk reinstatement and sort of is and sort of isn't uh, from the Semex decision that came out on uh, August, August 25th. So you want to kind of set that up for us, John, talk about Semex for a minute? Yeah. Um, so the Semex decision essentially did two things. Um, it number one, it uh switched the burden of asking for an election from the union to the employer. Um, so now when a, a union presents um, uh, signed cards, signed authorization cards uh, to the employer, the employer now basically has, well, three options. One, it can, it can uh, uh, agree to uh, uh, agree for the union to be the, the employee's uh, certified bargaining representative, number one. Number two, it can do nothing. And after 14 days, the union will be certified. 
or number three, within 14 days, the employer can ask um, for uh, can ask for an RM uh, uh, election uh, through a uh, uh, filing of an RM petition with the board instead of the union filing an, R an RC petition, which was the pre-SEMEX standard. Um, the RM petition traditionally says um, tests a an existing union's um, continuing majority status. And traditionally, an employer needs, you know, a good faith doubt of that majority status to file the RM petition. Um, that good faith doubt is it, it doesn't need to come into play here. So the employer gets an automatic right to seek the election, but the employer has to ask for it rather the rather than the union asking for the election um, following the presentation of authorization costs. So, so and, and that seems to be one of the things, the, uh, so that good faith doubt issue is one of the big problems with the Joyce Silk standard or doctrine or whatever it was called, um, which was essentially what you just described, card majority presentation of uh, show majority representation status. And the employer basically was obligated to accept the union without an election um, unless they had good faith doubt, which then opened up a whole can of, uh, definitional worms and standards that became very obscure. And, and Joyce Silk was around for like 20 years from the 40s to the 70s, early 70s. But it, it caused tons of litigation. And the board seemingly tried to sidestep all that. Um, and, and they also had an interesting, um, kind of an interesting take from Lauren McFerrin, who's the, who's the board chair, um, they released the short slide deck and, and if anybody wants it, you know, I'd be happy to send it to you if you drop me an email. Um, but if, and then you can find it, but it's, it's a little hard to find. It's not uh, super obvious where it is on the NLRB website, but anyway, uh, in the slide deck, there were two slides where she was quoted and I'm, I'm paraphrasing the quote, but it was something like, uh, you know, the, the board agrees that, that elections are still a, a thing, but they are not the only means to obtain a union majority from place to obtain a union majority. So what they kind of tried to do is split the baby a little bit. In in my opinion, they didn't want to get rid of the, of elections because the Supreme court has called them the gold standard. And it's still a, the most definitive and clear way to settle an election. It seems like they didn't want to get rid of that, which is what Joy Silk would have done. And it also seems like they didn't want to step back into that good faith doubt swamp. And so they basically just sidestepped it with this, twist and where they reversed the roles and said the employer can either choose to recognize or you can file an RM petition. And I, I just I would say this, um, just there's three kinds of petitions. There's RC petitions, which is the union is asking for a union election to determine if they represent the employees. There's an RD petition, which is a decertification petition, which employees typically file, employers can, but it's very rare. Uh, and then there's RM, which is the company seeking to clarify whether there's a majority or not. So if, you, if you've never dealt with it, there's three types and RCs are by far the most common and have been, but that's probably going to flip going forward. Um, and it's the onus is on the employer. And if you missed that 14 day deadline, you bought yourself a union. So buyer, buyer beware there for sure. Um Anyway, so it's 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 an entirely different kind of process. There are all kinds of nuanced rules. This is going to get litigated. Uh, it it uh, it puts a lot more burden on the the employer. There's questions about what what how unit determination will work. There's questions of all kinds of questions that we can't answer here today. But it's uh, it's quite an interesting and and I would say certainly un, unexpected 
approach that they took. Uh, yeah. One of the other big things, uh, one of the other big things they did was uh, the ULP uh, filing of ULP or the, if an employer conducts uh, an election, which they will, and they commit a unfair labor practice, there's a whole thing there too. And this is huge. So why don't you, why don't you cover that, John? Yeah. So the board said that um, during the, the election process, if, uh, the employer commits any unfair labor practice that would require the board to set aside the election, uh, the petition, uh, the RM petition will be dismissed. And rather than rerunning the election, as we would have typically seen um, in the pre-SEMEX, uh, uh, you know, pre-SEMEX, the board will instead just issue a bargaining order and require the require the employer to, to recognize and bargain with the union. So, you know, pre-SEMEX, uh, during your representation election, if there was a ULP and the board concluded that it could issue, you know, remedial orders and rerun an election under laboratory conditions, the board would just order a rerun election instead of um, ordering the ordering the employer to bargain, issuing issuing a bargaining order under Gissel. Here, the board says. If there's any unfair labor, any unfair labor practice that, that's committed by the employer that previously we would have said, we'll just rerun the election. Now we're going to say, no, employer, you now have bought yourself a union. You have to recognize and you have to bargain, period. And that is. And, and, yeah, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, no. Uh, I was going to say, you mentioned Gissel, and that was an, that's an extremely rare order with a very high bar to achieve. Right. Yeah. And and. Now it's kind of like, oh, I sneezed ULP bargaining order. That's sort of what this feels like, worst case scenario under the new standard. Yeah. So I don't think, I, I, it, I mean, I, I didn't read in the opinion where the board said it was overturning Gissel, but in essence, I mean, that's what it, or at least it supplanted Gissel by significantly lowering the standard for what a bargaining order was going to issue. Yeah. And yeah, it, they didn't, I don't think they did. I mean, I'm not an attorney, so the, but I, I read the, I read the 121 page opinion in the million footnotes and the great descent from Marvin Kaplan. And he, I think that was a problem that he saw is that they didn't actually overturn Gissel, but they, they created a, a whole new sort of standard bar, you know, a, a whole new order with this lower magnitude of threshold that they can just sort of pull out as you know, with that, Gissel was like the, the the ultimate remedy after every other alternative had been exhausted and the behavior was so egregious, right? That that that's why it had such a high bar. I mean, it was rarely utilized because it was hard to get one, right? And now it seems like they're like you can order them across the counter at McDonald's, like French fries. <laughs> well, the the reality is, well, I mean, whether whether. Semex overturned Gissel or not, I think it's a matter of semantics because we're never going to get we're never going to get to a Gissel bargaining order anymore because the standard for when a bargaining order is going to issue under Semex is so much lower. So we'll just never see a petition for a Gissel uh, for a Gissel bargaining order because they're just not going to be necessary anymore. Right, right, right. I agree. Um, it, but it's anyway. So so this is this is you know for the practitioners. Um, this is huge. Like it, it like if you get uh, uh, somebody comes in your office and presents any form of evidence that says we have a majority of the employees in this uh, location uh, have signed cards to, to allow the union to represent them. 
the clock starts ticking 14 days and you have certain things that you have to do. And if you miss those windows, you, you have essentially bought yourself a union. Um, that's one thing. Second thing is if, if you're conducting campaigns, which um, so the, so the, the recommendation, or at least what I, what I foresee happening is most employers will decline to recognize the union. Most employers will find file the bargaining or the, will file the RM petition and you should you need you need to do that within 14 days, but you don't necessarily have to do it the day after. And I would I would spin that out a bit and look at all your options and stuff. But in the meantime, you're still going to carry out a campaign and communicate with your employees about a union and what it means and that kind of thing. So there's a calendar that starts ticking in the 14 days, and then there's the if, assuming that that the board approves your RM request, then there's going to be some period of time, 20 24 to 28 days under their recommended new guidelines and rules for, for an election. So you're going to have about a month to carry out a, a campaign. Um, and usually they run right now, they're running about 59 days on average. So it's going to cut the time of election communication in half for employers. Uh, so there's a, there's a few things that come into play here that employers need to be thinking about. Number one is you need to have a lot of your pre-work done. Should you face a campaign, you need to have a lot of your pre-work done, like your campaign calendar, your communications pieces, your your file, you know who files a, who files the RM petition, who your labor lawyer is. We talked about a lot of this stuff in the last show, but there, like there's a lot of these things that you you need to have nailed down well in advance because if you're trying to do all this in the in the midst of an unexpected uh, demand for recognition, you're hosed. Uh, and, and so there's that. And then the second thing is. Um, you, you really need to start looking at the preventive side and the positive employee relations side and the training of your managers and supervisors in the do's and don'ts of what they can and can't say about unions and what they can and can't say to employees because the ULP factor becomes hugely significant here. And not that it wasn't before, but it's much more impactful now. Yeah, and I mean, when's the last time a union lost an election and didn't file an unfair labor practice, either during the campaign or after, or after the campaign, challenging something that happened during the election, and they don't right. always, they don't always win, but they certainly have a sympathetic board, and um, and so the the stakes have been significantly raised on employer conduct during during a campaign, and so if you don't know what you can do and can't do, um, and with this board, that bar is is moving to the left already anyway. But if you don't know what you can do and can't do, um, you really want to make sure you're wh whatever you're saying during the campaign is squarely in the do side because the 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 don'ts with this board, I think, are going to be construed against the employer and you're going to buy yourself a union that you might not you you don't want. And I think more significantly, and maybe the biggest takeaway here is you might buy you might buy your employees a union that they don't even want. But you're never going to know that because you're never going to have, um, even assuming the first election was tainted, and that's a big that's a big assumption, right? But even assuming the first election was tainted, you're never going to have that rerun election under the quote unquote laboratory conditions to really test the actual um, intent of your employees to unionize. So how many groups of employees as a result of Semex? Are going to get, are going to get stuck with labor unions they don't want, and I think that's that's probably the biggest takeaway from this um, from this decision. Yeah, and and like signing cards, one of the things that employers have always fallen back on is like employers employees will sign cards to kind of get out of the peer pressure. 
yeah. will sign a card because they most of them know or learn during a, an election campaign that they, they they always have the secret ballot election. Um, they still do, but it's gonna there's gonna be it, it there's just a lot of shifting stuff here. The the old rules are broken, and and I guess the third piece, John, that's really important is the retroactivity element here, right? The board made this retroactive back to the end of time, like they do with all their orders these days. Um, and that means that there are many employers like, and we always talk about Starbucks on every show, like Starbucks, who, even though they've, you know, had 300 of their locations vote unions in, they have, they have a hundred or so. I don't know what the num exact number is. I haven't looked in a while, but they have a hundred or so where they won elections, right? So there's 25% of the places where the employees chose not to be represented by unions, probably, face bargaining orders because Starbucks has been found guilty uh, during this last two years of numerous uh, ULP infractions, at, you know, maybe not at every one of those locations, but I, I, I fully expect the board to say, got to recognize all those, they'll probably overturn all those, elect well, maybe not all, but the majority of those elections retroactively. And so Starbucks, the, the Starbucks workers union is going to have a whole bunch more new locations to not negotiate a contract on behalf of. So it's, I know I can't help it. I have to dig. So anyway, uh, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on the retroactivity piece. No, I think that summed it up pretty well. So then the, so that's some acts, I guess. And, and that this is like, really pay attention to this and you don't necessarily have to read the 121 page decision. LRIonline.com has, you know, 10,000 words or so. That's a lot easier to read on our blog posts and stuff. And any law firm in the country that does employment law will have something up. Certainly John will on his blog. So lots of resources, but do familiarize yourself with it and start making plans to respond to it because it's probably going to pump up the, the union organizing activity, which is already at a high level right now. Anyway, we'll probably see a lot more of it because it, it appears to be that people will believe it'll be easier to organize. So... Uh, PCA, John, protected concerted activity. They had a that there was some stuff that happened in the last week there as well. Want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean there were there were two. I mean two big decisions on the issue of kind of what qualifies as protecting protected concerted activity under under the Act. Um, the American Federation for Children decision um, and the Miller Plastic Products decision. Um, the the first one american federation for children um held that and it uh, it concerted it's it, it's protected concerted activity whether the employee's speech or ad advocacy is for the benefit of current employees or for non-employees and in that case it was for um uh job applicants um so the board, uh, uh, the board said that employees who, between and among themselves, talk about, complain about, advocate about terms and conditions of employment, whether it's for current employees, uh, not or non-employees, qualifies as protected concerted activity, and those employees are protected by the act. Um, that was issue number one, and then issue number two in the Miller Plastic Products case. Um, that case dealt with the issue of what qualifies as concerted and the idea of concerted um, suggests that, and when I talk about the definition of protected concerted activity, I always say it's, you know, employees between and among themselves um, 
advocating for, complaining about wages, hours, benefits, and other terms and conditions of employment. And I always say between or among because concerted suggests that you need uh, at least two employees, right? And in Miller, Miller Plastic Products essentially said um, the lone wolf can qualify as – or the lone wolf's speech, complaints, advocacy can qualify as concerted um, depending on – and in the board's terms, the totality of the circumstances. <laughs> and really what the board is saying is if the intent of the lone wolf, the complaining employee, the advocating employee is to complain on behalf of or advocate for a group of employees – it's irrelevant whether anyone else chimes in or participates. It's really the 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 purpose of the person speaking, advocating, writing, whatever. It's their intent controls. And if you look at their conduct and in the in the totality of it, it looks like they are advocating on behalf of a group, even if they're the only one participating. That qualifies as concerted. Yeah, and I, I will say first of all, I, I don't remember the case, but there was a similar sort of push a few years back as as has happened a lot as, as the boards have gone back and forth between the Republican and Democratic versions. This isn't the first time they've tried this. So it, it, it didn't really stick the last time. I don't know if that, I don't know if it got reversed or I don't remember what happened. I want to say, I want to say it was an American, I want to say it was the American Red Cross that sticks in my mind and I I could be misremembering this, but yeah, I I just remember the, the decision was American Red Cross. And it basically said, yeah, the, you you look at the intent of the uh, yeah and that didn't that didn't stick and there's definitely a push now from the board to reassert um this incredibly broad definition of what qualifies i was still blogging back in those days and i vaguely remember that i wrote a blog post about you know protected concerted activity by yourself or something like that you know on your own you know because it it's which essentially means anybody can say anything they want however from a from a practical application standpoint i'd be interested to hear kind of how you break this down for your for your clients when when i was a practitioner in-house um and we had protected concerted, what we thought was protected concerted activity, we actually looked at it for the two, right? So we tried to ascertain kind of like, A, is it protected? Mm-hmm. You know, and if it was, to be honest, that almost was enough for us to, I mean, we didn't, we didn't, you know, there had to be some additional egregious behavior before we would let action be taken to just terminate the employee. If it, if it was just protected alone, forgetting and setting aside whether it was concerted or not, or there was any evidence of concerted activity, we kind of held the bar for protected. And, and that probably kept us out of a lot of trouble at the board, you know, uh, it, cause it, but it doesn't mean you have to give up your employer rights or that you can't control or administer discipline. If something is protected, you just have to measure it. And yeah. I mean, right is. line if, is right. Right line is still the right line is still the law, right? Yeah. And, on, and on like, termination, so, yeah. And like insubordination or threats or, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff would typically push us over the, you know, the protection was overcome by the the, the egregiousness of the behavior. If it was concerted, we, we, we probably took it even lower, a more cautious approach. But, you, but, but I mean, we, you know, I, I've, I've still had people terminated even when they were acting um, in extreme cases, when, even when they were acting 
concertedly on, and conducting protected activity, for example, where they've tried to sabotage something or something. I mean, PCA does not is not a get out of jail card, get out of jail free card. But right. it, it does have it does require some thought and analysis for every situation to determine where you're at. And I think what the board did, to your point, is just make it harder. So I don't know how you're advising your clients on this or how you think you will, but I'd be interested in hearing it. I mean, I think it's almost removed the concerted piece from the depth from the from the from the definition or from the standard, because if if the intent if all the controls is, is is the intent of the employee, I think an employee can make a good faith argument anytime they complain about working conditions, even if it's just on behalf of them, even if they're doing it on their own, their complaint, I think they have a good faith argument that their complaint would benefit all employees or a group of employees in in a, in a totality. And so I think it's going to be very difficult in the wake of Miller Plastic Products for an employer to argue that an employee complaining on their own about uh, a wage rate or a safety issue or uh, you know a time off policy or whatever um, isn't isn't concerted under the broad definition the board has put in place under under the Miller under the Miller Plastic Products decision. So yeah, in my view, it almost it kind of removes concerted from the equation. So we'll stop talking about PCA and we'll just talk about it's, PA. It's just, it's just protected activity. Yeah, now. interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. what it seems like to me. Yeah, I, I, and and I guess given what I just said a minute ago, that's kind of the standard we, at, at least at some of my employers, that we had followed anyway because it kind of it kind of kept you a little little more on the right side of the of the of the, of the law. But you know, you, it, you just have to assess the facts in each case. I wanted to mention one other thing, going back to the first topic of, of the Semex decision, I wanted to mention one other thing. Um, and I know we said that if, you know, there's going to be retro orders, um, there was a specific filing already by the Trader Joe's United Union. Um, there was an election conducted at a, a Trader Joe's store in uh, New York City several months ago. And it ended in a 76-76 tie vote about whether they wanted a union or not, which set, which a tie means the company wins um, the election. So no union was uh, selected by the employees. The That union, the day after the Semex decision came out, filed a, an unfair labor practice requesting a Semex bargaining order be issued in that election because there had been a number of ULPs filed. I, 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 I doubt they've been litigated yet. But that was the very first uh, filing, and you know that'll get watched closely because it's kind of the bellwether for a bunch of these others at the board will probably. So anyway, if, you, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, it's worth going to take a look at that uh, ULP. Um, we were going to talk about uh, a case that I haven't really spent much time on, so I'm going to defer to you for most of it, I think. But it, it's related to the kind of still developing uh, non-competes. Am I getting that right? Am I? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, Region 9, which is uh, uh, right here in Ohio, down in Cincinnati, um, issued a complaint against a company called Harper Holdings, which does business as Jubilee Aesthetics. And I'll be honest, I don't exactly know what the company does. I haven't looked at I haven't looked at who the company is or what they do. Um, but the complaint, among other things, uh, alleges that the company's uh, non-compete 
and non-solicitation uh, agreements with their employees violate the employee's rights to engage in protected concerted activity. Um, the, um, the employer um, had, uh, you know, non-compete, non-solicitation agreements with uh, a group of, with, you know, with all their employees. Um, and the board is taking the position as, um, uh, as, General Counsel Abruzzo said the board would that non-compete and non-solicitation agreements uh, when entered into uh, or required of employees, uh, uh, statutory employees protected by the act, um, uh, violate their rights to engage in protected concerted activity. And this, as far as I know, this is the first case that's going to test and litigate that issue. So it is a case that is definitely going to bear watching to see a what the ALJ in region nine does with it. Uh, and then secondly, when this case gets to the full board, which it will, um, what the board does with the issue of non-solicit and non-compete agreements under the, you know, under, under section seven. Yeah. Um, I, again, you know, it, this doesn't, um, doesn't necessarily change everything you do, but it, it is another reason to pay attention to the NLRB and kind of do a, a, you know, do a, you know, we got, got to do revisions of our handbooks because of Stericycle. We've got to develop new plans because of uh, Semex decision, got to develop new campaign approach. And, and in this, you got to make sure that your current versions of your, of your non-disparagement and there's other things that apply here as well not directly but just your whole you know your whole non-disparagement non-compete etc kind of any of those things that you have employees sign as a matter of course you need to make sure they're yeah. compliant yeah, when, with the nlrb when, when, standards when the board when when the board um uh tossed out um confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions in severance agreements there was a strong signal that this was coming. And so again, this, this will be a case of first impression. So we don't, we don't know how the board will ultimately decide. Although again, you can kind of handicap these things and, and the board has shown a strong, you know, preference against uh, this board has shown a strong preference against agreements that impose restrictions on employees and what they can say or do. And so I think you can, make a I think you can presume or you can handicap that the board will ultimately say that non-compete and non-solicitation agreements um violate employee section seven rights that uh but um we we won't know for sure until we ultimately see how this case comes out with with the full board but um yeah it's Non-competes have been under attack kind of nationwide. States have slowly started to roll out um, restrictions or prohibitions on non-compete agreements for certain employees. Um, there's been the Federal Trade Commission has, uh, under President Biden, has indicated that it might be a violation of like antitrust laws to have non-compete agreements, and they might issue some regs or rules that prohibit non-compete agreements. There's been talk of federal legislation, but with the current Congress, that won't happen. Um, you know, this when we think of kind of non-compete agreements, and and I think this would be a big stretch of the board's power to do this. But by the same token, 
um, you know, the NLR, the, the, the NLRA covers non-supervisory employees. So we're not talking about a decision that would ultimately limit the, the right of an employer to have, you know, a manager or an executive or someone with significant decision-making authority um, to prevent them from working for a competitor or soliciting customers or, or yeah. what have you. But you probably, you probably don't need to have your retail clerks and your burger Correct. flippers and, and your that, machine and, attendants. And, and, that, and that was the point I was going to make, you know, like, do you, if, if you, if you have an agreement in place, if, if you're asking your, you know, to, to use Starbucks as the example, if, if you're asking your baristas to sign a, and there are examples where like fast food restaurants have had their sandwich makers sign non-compete agreements. So like if, if you're asking your barista to sign an agreement that says, I'm not going to go, um, you know, to the coffee shop down the street, uh, you know, what legitimate interest are you trying to protect? And mm -hmm. is that, you know, is that overbroad on its face and, and, and an overreach on its face? And so um, I'm not sure we need the NLRB to step in here to say those kind of agreements are illegal, but um, but that's, but I, I would suspect that's what we're going to get. Yeah, they, they, they probably will. Um, let's wrap up with a couple of quick things. Uh, one is a couple of things that we talked about in the last show that we thought were going to happen with some X that didn't. And that was possible interventions in the, uh, conducting of mandatory employee meetings related to union election campaigns. No, no, nothing was done. So you can still make people come to meetings, although that's growing less and less, uh, favorable. Uh, and it's like, and, it's and, likely to, you know, I, I was going to say, so yeah, so right now that is still legal, but, and here's yeah. the big, but is that we've seen a trend with this board in making decisions retroactive so that when the board decides that if, if the board kind of picks up the, picks up the gauntlet that's been thrown down by general counsel Abruzzo and finds captive audience meetings, um, a a a violation of employees rights under the act the board is going to find that to be retroactive which means mm -hmm. that prior uh, prior um captive audience meetings before that decision are also going to be illegal and post semex those campaign unfair labor practices are going to bring about a bargaining order and right. so i think even though the semex decision did not touch that issue I think we we believe that's coming at some point in the near future. When it does, it will probably be retroactive. And if it is, you might have bought yourself a bargaining order, even though at the time it was entirely legal to have a captive audience speech. So right. So the so the the prudent thing is to make your meetings voluntary, still conduct them, and figure out ways to incent people to to want to attend. Uh, you know, not necessarily through pizza. But you know, share that share that there will be good information, et cetera. And then the other piece of the same thing was the tricast doctrine, which is you know talking about the the relationship of employers, direct relationship between employees and, and employers, and how a union would change that. That is still currently legal, but also in the similar lens that you just talked about. Yeah, the with, same rationale uh, applies. Yeah, and then um, which which I will say, I mean, it does for those of us that you know work on campaigns and advise employers on campaigns um it makes it really hard for us to do our jobs yeah it's so inconvenient right so one of the one of the interesting things about that decision was we thought all that might happen in semex and it didn't and so there was some discussion around our offices about why and and i think phil addressed this in a webinar we did uh phil wilson uh he speculated that you know 
this is good. You know, the, the Semex decision and all the stuff that was described with the bargaining orders and whatnot is going to be tested, right? And and may or may not be sustained by the courts. So, and then if they had rolled uh, mandatory meetings and tricast in, why do it all in one swing, right? Why not set up other cases, right? So that you do mandatory meetings in some other decision yet to be seen and a similar approach with TriCast, because even if you get one of those three set aside, it's it, it's not set aside, you know, the judge can't set aside the whole thing, right? So the speculation was a bit of, there's a bit of legal strategy here by the yep. board to, to preserve, you know, as many of the issues at whole in in, in their entirety, but singular singularly, you know, and I think I think that's a pretty good observation, a pretty good idea. So we're and and I think the last thing is with Wilcox coming back on, we have three Dems and one Republican. So Marvin Kaplan's the lone Republican. He'll write all the dissents for the rest of his term. Um, but you know, it, these things are very likely to happen. Um, maybe not in the coming weeks, but they're very likely to happen going into next year. I would think. I I, I think we still believe that. So I don't know if you have anything else you want to wrap up with. No, I think that's, I mean, the, the the composition of the board hasn't changed and the policy direction of the board will not change until sometime after the 20, 2024 election, uh, maybe, depending on- Maybe, right. Depending on outcomes. So uh, I think the, the push to help unions continue to, to, to continue to unionize workplaces will continue at least for the next, you know, 18 months, if not longer, so- yeah, it, it looks like uh, it looks like activity is getting hot in your backyard based on some some information we were talking about on our in text over the weekend. Right. That's, yeah, I mean, we've, not... seen, uh, we've seen some pharmacies that have uh, some uh, three Walgreens pharmacies. The pharmacists have uh, have filed um, uh, uh, election petitions. So, yeah, there is um, it is. You know, we went from kind of 18 to 24 months of hot organizing activity. We then had hot strike summer. And now it looks like the organizing um, activity is, is picking up again. So. Yeah, we shall see. Well, listen, it's great to catch up with you. Uh, we'll set up another show in a couple of weeks. And as always, we'll continue to chat. Uh, oh, I was going to ask, cause everybody wants to know, I'm sure I want to know, which means everybody wants to know you had your, uh, you had your insurance inspector out finally. How's the house going? Is it any good news um, there? I, everyone, I'm actually working from home today, so everyone can't see, but you can see. So that's the current. That's the current. Oh, yeah. state, that's the current state. That's the current state of my kitchen. So <laughs> uh, it will be a it will be a slow process getting yeah. things, getting things fixed. So I, I don't have the uh, I don't have the final say so from the adjuster as to what's going to be covered and what's not going to be covered. Um, and uh, um, we should hopefully have some estimates done in the near future and and hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, three or four months from now, I, I can we can record a show uh, from my new kitchen and I can show you what it looks like. So yeah, we'll do it. Maybe we'll do a video version of it. For those that don't know, John tried to recreate uh, a river runs through it, the part two in, in his kitchen and his upstairs bathroom and some other parts of his house and had a major mess with water. I feel, I, 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 I feel more like Noah. From the, from the Bible. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. You have a good week and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Cheers. Take care. Bye.